Welcome to Leave Your Mark, where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page at Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to create a community of people who take every opportunity to live high-performing lives. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning is a method and language of integrated practice. It brings the worlds of therapy and conditioning together and helps them become more powerful and more practical. If you live in one or both of these worlds or you use the services of a therapist or conditioning coach, you know that sometimes they don't see eye to eye. They aren't on the same page. Reconditioning provides a time-tested process for aligning these two worlds and creating impactful solutions to performance problems. Follow them at Reconditioning HQ on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or become a member of their Facebook group, Reconditioning HQ Revolution, and join the Reconditioning Revolution. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce one of our good friends and somebody that I have uh, the utmost um, sincerest respect for as a human being. Jeremy Shepard, I've known for a number of years now. He is the effectively the performance director for Snowboard Canada, and he'll correct me if I get the, the t- details of the title incorrect, but it's all semantics anyways. He's basically large and in charge of making sure that our snor- snowboard athletes in Canada get the best services possible. He is working with guys like Mark Morris and Seb Tuton. Before that, he he is a Canadian, but he was working in Australia for a number of years, overseeing the surfing program in the, in, in Australia. He um, is one of the brightest guys I've ever met when it comes to um, really cross-pollinating the world of performance and reconditioning and therapy and working with people and creating teams. And he's just uh, a dynamite human being. And at the end of the day, he's just, a like I said, a, a great person as well. So I welcome uh, this man to our room. I'm going to demutify him, I think, or you have to demutify him. So you have to find him because you're the boss. I see him. There he is. He's unmuted. Welcome, Chair. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. I've been looking forward to this. We're very excited. So we're going to be asking Jer a couple questions here that we think people will get some value from. And then if you guys have further questions, like I said, drop them in the chat and Jamie will occasionally punch me in the arm and say, uh, we've got a good question here from such and such. So Jer, uh, welcome. And fundamentally, you know, you've had an amazing amount of experience uh, in the world of uh, human performance for a long time now. Um, I want to sort of get deep into, well, first, why don't you tell everybody about your experience? Where, where do you come from in this world uh, of, of human performance? And what does, what does your resume, so to speak, bring to the table without going into uh, a three-hour dissertation on all the amazing things that you have done? So, I suppose um, for me, like probably almost everyone on the call, came came about an interest in helping people in sport by being interested in sport in the first place. And I guess I I didn't think it was a regular at the time, but when I was young, I I really was curious about training and how to do different things from, from really when I think back about it from a really young age, kind of got like interested in the cause and effect of different things that could happen. Um, But wasn't one of those sort of supremely talented athletes. So I was more of what would people would, you know, call a workhorse kind of thing. Uh, but certainly not a, a Formula One or a thoroughbred, if we're to extend those analogies, really just more of a workhorse, 
of course, uh, mediocre at just a tremendous amount of things. Um, so that's my special talent is averageness athletically at everything. <laughs> um, yeah. So then, I mean, I guess what happened is, uh, you know, this is, uh, for the younger folks, this is probably always a little bit of a shakeup, you know, to kind of say, Oh, what's, what the heck's he talking about? But, um, for those of us that are, you know, a little bit younger than me and, and maybe a little bit older than me is there was a time where like, we actually didn't really know what the profession could be called because we didn't have tools like the internet to, just find out what other people in the community were doing. So I ended up kind of uh, not achieving the athletic dreams that I wanted. And, and the only path that I knew about was, was therapy and, and, and coaching. And so I kind of went towards coaching, but then realized that I didn't want to spend the rest of my life in a hockey rink. I wanted to see the world. And I also wanted different influences because I grew up in the prairies. So basically your influences are hockey, hockey, and then right. Like farming. <laughs> so, right so it's it's like not like I was worldly and it's and but yet I was curious about the world and I thought I don't know if getting a job uh, for ten thousand dollars a year in the Manitoba Junior Hockey League as a assistant coach in 1989 is really gonna get me to see the world right and so I just didn't know what to call it um so I just started doing what we now consider physical preparation and just 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 starting making my journey of mistakes and learning. Our sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com, is going virtual. The Reconditioning Level 1 has been turned into a complete online experience, and all the time-tested systems and processes are now available to you in 20 hours of online video modules and two virtual Zoom sessions. Reconditioning is a very powerful language and system of practice that brings the worlds of therapy and performance together in one complete package and helps you deliver the most powerful injury and performance solutions to your clients. Check them out at ReconditioningHQ.com today and join the Reconditioning Revolution. Oh, cool. So to get sort of deep into it really quickly, what have you found? Because um, you really come at it, obviously, from the performance side, the, the st- call it the strength and conditioning side of the equation. And most of the people in the room understand that reconditioning, our, our mission really is to bring the two worlds therapeutic um, concepts and performance concepts together. And, you know, you, that's your acumen. And I know you've you, you have, over the to- time of your career, worked towards understanding better and better the other side of the equation. What have been some of the challenges you found from your side of the equation in doing that? Wow, great, great question. So one of them on a community level, so being, say, the strength conditioning community, I certainly lived through, um, through a point in the profession where the predominant narrative, not the entire narrative, but a predominant portion of the population in, in that strength conditioning community view, viewed the therapy world as not interdependent and at times even at competition, even at odds. So if you think about a high-performance team, they're going to have a mutual understanding of what success looks like, and they're going to need each other to be successful as individuals and, of course, as a team. But we were a long way from that. That would have been the biggest barrier is just that narrative. And if I can, you know, I don't know, let's say the typical um, bald 
strength conditioning coach with his or her arms crossed, not, not as many hers that are bald, but with their arms crossed being like the therapist just, just want to do X, Y, Z, whatever. And I'm kind of like, this is a long way from Stephen Covey, seek first to understand before being understood. This sounds like a lot like I'm going to be understood because there's nothing out there to understand. So judgment way more than curiosity, which didn't help us. Uh, didn't help us at all. And in fact, I can think of specific examples where I'd observe at a meeting or a conference or even just in a workplace setting where someone in the strength conditioning field who showed empathy for an idea or concept that came from the therapy world uh, or from the therapist directly, it was almost like, oh, you're going that way with your, you know, with your interest, like, like as if, Ooh, right. You're going dark. Yeah. Like, like, Oh, I see. Like it would like almost like, like a really bad. Like I think of it like, like just like, like almost like a terrible fashion mistake. Very much like, Oh wow. Really? You know? And, and I mean, those, those types of conversations are very, um, very much lessened. But there's there's still out there, and there's still biases. There's still fears. Um, there's still fears about giving you know giving up some kind of power. But that's not leadership. When you think about power that way, that's power over, not empowerment of. Right. So power over is when you well, if I truly collaborate and truly integrate that I'm giving up some of my authority. Well, that's a power over structure and that's not where real leadership comes from anyway. So I'm sorry to get in the weeds on, on well, that. Well, that's, I want you to get in the weeds and, and to that measure, and this is another sort of pivot off of that, that I'm interested in is um, your viewpoint on is, you know, we're, we're taught in school to go, you know, into our silo in effect. So, you know, you, you decide you're going to become a strength conditioning coach or you're going to become an athletic therapist or you're going to be a physiotherapist or whatever it is that you're going to do. And, and naturally, you have to get into that specialization to really acquire the skill sets and understand what it is you're doing. But our educational system doesn't necessarily do a great job of horizontally uh, expressing us naturally. So we're, we're driven into that. And in fact, we, we have this kind of momentum around getting a master's, maybe a PhD, all these different things around that sort of continuing up that silo. So when we, we would probably all agree that that's kind of what is given to us or prescribed to us. So how do we, how do we encourage from the get-go sort of what, what I've described in essence is a kind of a up, out, up, out, up, out kind of format where people are growing and developing horizontally. Because in order to be empathetic, you have to also make effort to understand what the other person does, right? And that's, mm-hmm. I think, in listening to what you just said, that one of the weaknesses is we don't do that. So your thoughts yeah. on that? Matrix Fitness is one of the largest commercial fitness brands in the world and one of the fastest growing in the industry. Their equipment and programs are used by athletes and coaches at all levels globally. COVID-19 has changed and will change so many things. During these uncertain times, Matrix's team of engineers have quickly put together its free home workout app and youth at home workout programs. With its launch just a couple of weeks ago, they now have first responders, pro athletes, and average folks using the 
guide to help them with their daily movement. This is a great example of how Matrix strives to be the best fitness company in the world to serve people and communities is their goal. You can download their free app and see additional resources at Matrix Total solutions support.com that is https www.matrixfitnesssolutionssupport.com yeah so i think um to incentivize that or or make that more probable i think that one of the key things is is when you're trying to collect a group of people to transition them into being act- an actual team you really need to think about their eq uh, and the lens that they view on these things, and you need to explore that. So as an example, let's say you were trying to put together a private practice clinic, and your vision for this private practice clinic would be to have uh, a strength conditioning coach and, say, an osteopath, an athletic therapist, and a physiotherapist, and a medical doctor working together. So you've got these four professions. You don't just hire the skills, you also have, have to hire the EQ. And when some people say fit, they sort of think of it as, well, this person's authoritarian, so we're going to need to hire a bunch of other followers. Well, that, that's one way to solve the problem, but it's probably a short-term solution and it'll probably result in modest to maybe pretty good results. But they're probably going to be results not through challenge and change. They're going to be results through direct direction and compliance. And I hate the word compliance. <laughs> we use it so much like this person's not complying with their monitoring. Coach Shepard, how do I get more compliance um, and more buy-in? And I'm like, blow it up. Who cares? What you want is engagement. Your monitoring clearly sucks or your messaging clearly sucks. So when I think about compliance, and I think about followership, I think about how sometimes they assemble teams where it's based on, well, this person's the immovable object. So let's put some emotional pawns around them or, you know, and then what you get is an echo chamber, right? And then that's not really high performance. Like that can work short term, like Leah with Chrysler, it can work short term. And then he leaves and, you know, it's a horrible company. So, I think that's a really key part, too, is thinking about the dynamics of those ingredients that you put into the team. And I guess the other thing, too, is clearly defining what you're going to place value upon so that you because your culture is kind of what we're talking about here. That's going to be a consequence of what you reward and what you, you know, sounds like a harsh word, but punish. You know, and I don't mean using a whip or corporal punishment. There's, you know, plenty of ways to punish people through deselection, lack of opportunities, or even just reprimands is a is a form of punishment. Having difficult conversations about their behavior, that's a way to, you know, obviously call out those behaviors. But you got to work on a culture where that becomes normal. And if you hire on a Friday, it's not you're not ready on a Monday. You got to understand that that it's never done. Um, but also it might take 90% of your time to get the first 10% of your results, you know? So it's reverse of athletic performance. It's like, wow, it takes, takes longer than we think it's going to be harder than it should be, but it could be better than we can imagine. Hmm. But it's a lot of work on the front end to get that first 10%. But then like anything involving momentum, 
the weight keeps spinning, the weight keeps spinning. And then that, you know, you start to create a culture where that is the new normal. And as the person who's the architect of it, you actually don't have to do too much work anymore. You just make sure the thing keeps spinning and that the parts are helping contribute to that spin. Here again with another word from our sponsor, Zenkai Sports, the new disruptor in the performance apparel world. Zenkai uses a brand new technology that repels liquids, keeping you cooler during intense activity as the sweat evaporates naturally off your skin. This allows athletes to regulate body temperature easier and push themselves harder as we harness the power of our sweat. Sweat is our friend. Keep it on you. Zenkai Sports is also the only performance apparel company which is cotton-based. All of their gear is over 65% cotton and some pieces over 95%. Cotton is biodegradable, feels great against our skin, and is much better for our environment than synthetic-based apparel. Please go to ZenkaiSports.com for more information and for 20% off your entire order. Just use the discount code LYM20. That's awesome. I'm going to sort of lead you into a space of uh, a sort of a, a perfect example or an example. But before I do that, I want to, I want to know as, as the professional that you are leaning more to the performance side and dealing with the preparation of the athlete, <clears throat> when you, when you have an athlete that comes to you to start working, how do you, you don't have to go into all the fine print detail, but how do you intake them? What are the more important things for you to know and understand? And how does that link or how do you immediately begin to link to those performance professionals who may need to be referred to to help you strategize to improve this athlete's performance? So how do you go into that that new um, client situation and how are you maintaining your rather than your eyes closed, I'm a strength coach, this is what I'm going to do, versus I'm working with this group of people, and, and whether in a clinical environment or a performance environment like you're in, how we become inc- inclusive and connect the dots to refer out. Yeah, awesome, awesome. So um, history is really, really critical. So training history and type. So not just knowing how much they've trained, but of what type. You know, so whether that's like what's comprised their on snow training in in recent history, and I say recent being the last couple of years, right? Injury history is critical. Um, Background um, in terms of like age, because there's certain ages where we might be monitoring to assess for peak height velocity. Um, There might be maturation issues, those kind of things. Um, Examinations, so there might be some medical. Uh, assessments that you'd you'd want to put in there, whether they be biological, um, healthy baselines at that point in time. Access to previous healthy baselines is obviously really helpful as well. Um, and then, you know, once we start saying you've got that covered, you've got, say, you know, some sort of evaluation on where they are in terms of lifestyle habits and sleep, mental aspects, outlook, uh, tendencies, those kind of things then you'd want to, you know, also really understand their technical. So in my world with, say, freestyle, you'd want to know what tricks they can do really well. Uh, You'd want to know how long it took them, if you could find this information, to acquire those, because then you know where their on-ramps are to further performance and then where their challenges are, because they might have some skills that were really hard fought 
and some that came easier. And that can give you a clue of their skill acquisition tendencies and, and success leaves clues. So you can find that. And then what you'd want to do is look at what's realistic for them in the, in the near and medium future in terms of the skills that they're you know, trying to acquire. Once you have that, then you sort of know with the training history, then you, then you have a reference point of how much training is realistic and what type is novel and therefore needs to be introduced with caution and what type is normal, which can then be tidied up and given more purpose or whatever upgrades you can find. That way you don't, you know, abuse them physically because you're like, Hey, this is really good training, but it's way too much because I made assumptions about a 17 year old that I, you know, maybe shouldn't have. Um, and obviously with injury history, that's critical. So now, now that you've got all that squared away and you've assessed that, then what you really need to know is how they move and how they move fundamentally, because sport is about making shapes and changing shapes. And in my sport, you get judged by the beauty of those shapes amplitude, execution, difficulty, and variety are the judging criteria. But those words just describe the specifics of making different shapes, changing shapes, and we want you to survive making those shapes as well. So can you get into those positions? Can you get out of those positions under a controlled environment? So for me, a therapy assessment, if it can be enhanced with some basic motion analysis as well in that controlled environment, is really valuable. And the reason why it's really valuable is because if you have a fundamental issue, let's say it's with one joint, let's say that as a snowboarder, you have full range available to you in your hip for internal and external rotation, and we're happy, but you can't stabilize the leg all the way up into the acetabulum and move the hip over top of the femur independently. If you can't dissociate that movement, when you go to do, well, anything in our sport, you're going to have a compromised movement pattern. So you can be strong and you can be stretchy. You can have some basic suppleness on the yoga mat. But when it comes to snowboarding, you can't maintain that edge because when you go to counter-rotate, you counter-rotate and you actually rotate your leg. And then that has you wash out on that toe edge. So yeah, you got a great vertical jump in the gym, but how do you pop off a snowboard when you've got no base in which to press on because you know how to edge, but as soon as you go to rotate, you lose that edge. Um, I know that's hard to explain just with my fingers and my words, but that's just like one fundamental example where it all breaks down. And you know, one of the things on this study, if I can take a, I, I promise I won't make it too much of a tangent, but one, one of the things that's interesting about studies that do a movement assessment and then people take that movement assessment and throw it, throw it away and say, movement assessments are useless because they don't predict injury. You've got to fire so many people if you think that way. <laughs> like, like, get rid of your doctor because her blood tests don't do crap right? Get rid of your strength coach because we all know like my strongest athlete was not the guy that won has won the most world titles in any sport I've worked with. My most explosive surfer. Yes. But my most, and my most explosive snowboarder. Yes. 
but it's not like it's a rank order predictive correlation, just like it might rain this afternoon and it might not. But what I can do is I can understand to, to borrow, uh, to paraphrase Matt Jordan is I can understand that there's probabilities. And so it's actually preposterous if you understand research to think that seven movements or 21 movements or even 121 movements will somehow account for things like fear, wind, the build of the jump, a manufacturer's defect in the snowboard, a, a broken relationship the night before the final, um, age, experience, exposure rate, competitive pressure. The person just before them landed a better run. Now they're nervous, you know, whatever, what, like there's, would it be a million or would it be a billion things that influence injury? So for me, when I, when some of my colleagues go, these movement screens, throw them out. I'm like, we make shapes and change shapes. I would like to know how well they make shapes because it's our combined job to make better shapes. And if we can't make those shapes and all we're going to do is throw away things because they don't answer preposterous questions, overly ambitious questions to create certainty around it. And then we're just as a profession going to say, well, look, I got them bigger, faster and stronger. So my job is done. We lost everything, but I'm just, that's not what's best for our profession. And I feel really strongly about that. That's awesome. Obviously. It's awesome. Beautiful. (laughs) Do we have any, uh... we have tons of questions and comments. So first was from Rachel. She said, I like how you were talking about setting the tone because when you work hard to set up the tone and then people begin to reflect and mimic that tone, right? It's definitely easier to do when you start something than when you come into something and then change it. Right. Yeah. So I don't know if you have a comment on that, but I thought that was a really nice. Yeah, for sure. No, I mean, I I think, um, I think it takes sometimes, I don't know, maybe you could even call it courage because it takes courage to sort of say, look, these let's work on our values. Let's work on the processes that we place value upon And then let's discuss the behaviors that move us towards that. And then it takes a little courage to actually discuss because immediately people think, oh, you're using an example. Was that me? Did I do that last week? It takes a little courage. Um, And that's why you have to, that's why you have to talk about it with so much caution Mm -hmm. and humility and contrasting is really key. You know, reestablishing purpose, like what I'm intending here is this, what I'm not intending here is this psychological safety 101 make it clear where your intentions lie so that you can discuss it and then at first like if you ask someone who joins a team that that i might be accountable for by week three if you sort of said to them you know what's it like they're like gosh feels like feels like a religious summer camp every time we meet we go over our values and we go over the processes we take value upon and then someone is called out for behaviors matching our values and then we do a debrief. What was the mission? How did we do against the mission? What could we do better today, you know, tomorrow that we didn't do today? What were, like, let's count our wins, which I got from you two. Let's count our wins. <laughs> you know, and you, you go through this and people are like, summer camp, summer camp. When's the Kool-Aid coming, right? And, and then by sort of week six, you sort of realize, like, 
wow, we really are going to do this all the time. And I like it. Or maybe they don't like it. And every once in a while, they don't like it. And what they'll do is they won't tell you they don't like it in my experience. What they'll do is they'll behave as if they don't respect it. And so that's when you get people undermining saying, I should talk to, you know, Therese about this, or I should talk to Michaela about this, but I'm, I'm just going to go and solve this. I got this. I'll go do this. Even though that behavior has clearly been outlined as that moves us away from our values. And then what you find is, oh, this happens about one in every hundred people. In my experience, one in every hundred people. So we got a 1% narcissist populate in our population. All right. Good to know. What do you do with the narcissist? Stop the bus. Let them off the bus. They'll get on a bus with a bunch of other narcissists and they can go fight it out. (laughs) Love it. So question from Glenn, from your experience in Australia and North America, what key differences are there in high performance models that we can learn from each other? Matrix Fitness produces training equipment that focuses on improving the training experience for athletes and coaches alike, with equipment that focuses on building speed, power, and explosive performance in the most efficient manner. Matrix has partnered with some of the top sporting organizations worldwide. As a global brand with local support, the Matrix Performance Team assists their customers with solutions, research, and training protocols so coaches can focus on what they do best, help athletes prepare for competition, and get better. Follow them on Facebook and Instagram at Matrix Fitness Canada for the latest updates around the success stories that document what makes Matrix unique as an equipment manufacturer. Great. uh, Really good question. Um, And, you know, honestly, for me, I think experience overseas is, is a critical thing because I can use those experiences. So one of the ones is that I've said before at uh, kind of the national level, when you have these different um, sort of setups is there's far too many different badges and jackets and mission, vision, mission, value statements. Like I moved back to Canada under the deluded impression I was joining this thing called team Canada. And so my team Canada involves you two. Because I just made up my own little team Canada, right? I'm in, I got this cool room and I get to hang out with the cool people. We got the ping pong table. We got the good IPA going and the music is really good. Scotty's in charge of that. But out there in the big bad world, we got all these different rooms and people are fighting in those rooms. And then when they come to the living room, they're fighting with each other. And sometimes they don't even know that they're fighting and they don't, they don't even know that they're fighting for that elbow space in the living room and, those kind of things. And it's funny because there's a lot of good people, but they're wearing a different badge. And these things are really important. Like these, it's not subtle, right? Like it's, it's not subtle that the Canadian Sport Institute is not allowed to put the Olympic rings on their building. That's not subtle. That's actually really profound. That's a tribe. And it says you're not part of this tribe. And so it's perplexing when I go in the ski cross program, like there's four Olympic medalists and I got the snowboard program and I got four Olympic medalists. And, and then the, the para Alpine team is working with um, Kayla and they've got, what I don't know, like 19 medalists or something like that in their program of 19 athletes. And you're kind of looking around going, geez, there's a lot of Olympians and Olympic medalists around here, but we train in a spot where, 
transactionally for sponsorship reasons, we're not allowed to have that logo. And then I've got a different logo, but then my buddy MJ in Calgary, he's got the same logo, but it's slightly different. It gives a specific location. I mean, I'd be happy with latitude and longitude, right? But no, we have this, we have this thing and then we have a separate this and a separate that and a separate way of doing things. It's nobody's fault, but it's also not a solution to say it's no one's fault, is it? Like blame is really not a part of critical change in solutions. So that's the biggest thing for me is alignment. That would be the biggest one. I guess another one would be, um, I think that in Canada, we need to remember that we, we cared about sport in the 80s until 1988. And then it was embarrassing that Ben tested positive and Canada, uh, Sport Canada changed its mission statement overnight and things changed. And then it was almost like a little dirty to win. Um, but, you know, we still had success, like some rowers punched above their weight and things carried on and it was good. And then we got the 2010 games and people started to really care. And we, we, we forgave ourselves for being ambitions, ambitious as polite Canadians. And I was living in Australia at this time, but I observed this reinvigoration of a, a elite sport. And what happened was instead of building the business slowly and meth- uh, methodically, what we ended up having is we would bolt on to the solution. So right now, Canada has this rocket ship, but some of the parts are not inside the rocket ship where they're supposed to be. We've got certain critical parts of propulsion and, and strategy and, and direction and navigation that are actually bolted to the outside of the rocket. And so our challenge is, is just trying to fly straight and, and, and have, have precision and accuracy in the efforts that we do. So the wastage um, through inefficiency is, is really, really high. Mm. Again, I, I wish I could say, and it's all so-and-so's fault. But it's, it's not. But what, it, what it's accidentally done is we now have hierarchy. So we have hierarchy over decision-making. We have hierarchy over uh, resources, which if you're not really careful with hierarchies, they can be hierarchies of people and hierarchies of organization, not hierarchies of accountability, which is an effective hierarchy. So when you have these unchecked hierarchies, of people and of organizations, that actually leads to tyrannical behavior, which you have to be really careful, really careful with, um, because wanna, that, that creates special rules for special people. I want to pivot off that question um, a little differently in the to sort of bring it a little bit back to, I would call, the technical side of what we're talking about. But you worked, obviously, in surfing. And one of the things that... as I found interesting about working in Canada, we work with a lot of skiers, snowboarders, et cetera, uh, the winter sports. And fundamentally, when you look at the, the process of athletic development that's kind of been contrived or developed in, in the US of A through the NCAA system, we're, we're talking about the classic running based sports so you know football basketball soccer all these sports even baseball where you've got to run to base etc there's this sprinting and and so a lot of the training is foundationally ascribed through that lens but when you come back to canada when we look at skiing snowboarding and you go back to surfing um i'd be interested in you know you obviously you are a surfer skateboarder snowboarder yourself 
what did you bring to that from the lens perspective when you went to work with surfing? And what did you come back with from that in looking at the shapes, the, the impact loads, the way the athlete trains and stuff that, that maybe I wouldn't, I don't like the word bias, but drove your vision of how you train those kinds of athletes, maybe a little bit differently than you do a rugby player or a soccer player or football player. For sure. So the last part of your question, because there's a lot to that one, but the last part of your question, I would state really simply is that in sports like surfing and snowboarding, the degrees of freedom in terms of the amount of shape, amount of different shapes that they need to make and the way they get into and out of those shapes, the degrees of freedom is huge. So fundamental movement is very different um, in terms of how good it needs to be, I guess, is what I'd say is like how effective it needs to be. So say, for example, a colleague in rugby might say, look, if you've got rotation this way and you've got rotation this way and you've got uh, rotational power in these directions and you can run on a stable base, you can pass effectively both ways. And and we've now cleared that as an issue. Whereas in sports like surfing and snowboarding, we're we're getting like we're, we're checking your toes, are your toe, your toes do everything that they're supposed to do? Because all those little 1%, you know, articulations and control and the neuromuscular aspects of it, they all add up. And that's where our competitive advantage comes from. So things like volumes of training, like a volleyball player, when I worked at that sport, which, which would be sort of my, my more traditional team sport that I worked the most with about 18 years in volleyball I mean, we would do between 60 and 110 hours a year of mobility work. Well, with surfers and snowboarders, it's between four and seven times that amount. And people, like a rugby player would be like 365 days a year, on average, you're doing two hours of mobility. Yes, some of them are. Because we got to be experts at making those shapes and changing those shapes. And how it relates to the reconditioning community and that lens is even though that sounds like a lot of yoga, if you want to just think that that's how I program, (laughs) there's a link to an online yoga class, but we don't do it that way. We link that to, okay, your, your trick is the, you're trying to work on the, the cab 16. So switch front side 16 rotation and where you're limited is thoracic rotation to get that right and thoracic strength we can't say that you have strength at the end range because you don't have adequate end range so hardware issue this is our strategy resolve that software issue this is our strategy how does that relate where do we go next okay the hips at 95 percent let's let's try and get 100 like better is good but let's let's see if we can actually take care of that dorsiflexion is at 12% on that back foot, sorry, 12 centimeters on that back foot. Let's see if we can get it to 15. That's a hardware issue. Let's get that therapy going, injection, intervention, whatever is required, risk benefit ratios are added up. Come up with your hardware strategies, your software strategies, basically trying to make everything better to do that. Whereas, you know, in volleyball, you're like, you know, can you do all these fundamental things but because there's such specialized positions, it's not as it's not as diverse. 
Mm. Interesting. Cool. Do we have another question? We do. So this is from a little while ago. So we're going to shift back to sort of your team dynamic stuff um, from Mo Sheik. He said, what do you do to get a multidisciplinary team? I mean, you might've covered some of this, but maybe there's other things you want to add to be on the same page, despite some, all members, maybe having professional prejudices, power struggle issues, et cetera, with other team members. And do you have team bonding activities, weekly slash monthly team meetings, staff presentations like what what's your strategy um probably a a mix of strategies that um i'd like to think are not necessarily these conscious things where let's do this to increase this it's i think it's more like this is who we are and how we work and we actually have an infographic that is titled who we are and how we work Uh, And it defines, you know, four major behavior categories, and then it has supporting points for each of those um, categories. So what does it mean to be bold? What does it mean to be synergistic? Um, So those are the kind of things that we we have in there, uh, and we refer to it. So this becomes our normal. So rather than have a mantra on the training room wall, We have our mantras and we don't just tap them on the way out like the football team does. We talk about the mantra. We talk about what it means and we call out examples. Um, But I think another critical one is when you have, um, because embedded in that question was what about when you have biases or maybe someone trying to protect or even build their kingdom? We often have conversations about your individual ambitions as a practitioner are not subordinate, but they are never superior to the team ambition ambitions, but they also have to be aligned. So what you want in your career, you may not get it here. Mm-hmm. And that's okay, but we need to have a conversation about that. So for example, when I was hiring um, uh, a, a new you know, physician, after Pyeongchang, I was actually quite concerned because I only knew a few physicians in the country. And so this was an intimidating thing for me, whereas I could have, I could have just rung somebody up right in Australia or even New Zealand or even the U S. So I had to go to the field. And so what we did was we, we talked for two hours with each candidate before interviewing them. So we made a short list of seven people. We spoke to each of them for two hours and said, this will not be a fast hire. That's not what we're about. If you're looking for a quick answer and you consider that professional, we're not for you. We're going to take our sweet darn time in figuring this out. And this is not an interview. This is a conversation. And then we had them sit on it for two weeks because basically Therese and I were just saying like, here's an example. Uh, we, we, what if we observe this? Would, would you consider that okay? This is why we considered upside. And we went into specific examples And one of the key ones was the way that decisions are made um, and the way that we speak to each other uh, about, say, injuries and incidences and and making it clear that it's a holacracy, uh, not something, and it's contextual leadership. So if it's a medical decision, the medical doctor is going to have the highest contextual leadership of decision has to be made. But there's no reality that exists where we're going to tolerate them even shushing the wax tech because the wax tech knows more about snowboarding than she ever will, mm. right? Not because she doesn't know snowboarding. She snowboards, but she married a semi or former professional snowboarder. 
she's married into snowboarding, but snowboarding's his life. It's what he does every day. Whereas my chief medical officer, she does an ACL surgery every day. So when it's time to do the ACL, we don't have a like. It's not like they're wax tech. Like, hey Ryan, step up to the plate. You're going to do this ACL today. We're not idiots, right? You hire smart people, so you don't have to. You don't have to say scope of practice. Stay in your lane, you know. Like, stay in your lane. I'm like, like people in the lane next to me are my competitors. So it's a terrible, terrible analogy, mm-hmm. and it's very rules based and limits based. Like, not only are you not going to do that surgery, and I'm worried about that wax tech doing the surgery, so I got to put these rules in place. That's crazy talk. Like, that's insane. A conversation is not a scope of practice, right? Scope of practice is who's bracing the C-spine after the crash. Well, that's scope of practice. And we all know where those limits are, but we can still talk about those things. And I think it's just really, really important to hire the right people that want to be a part of a team like that, not just are willing, but actually are ready and able Here again with another word from our sponsor, Zenkai Sports, the new disruptor in the performance apparel world. Zenkai uses a brand new technology that repels liquids, keeping you cooler during intense activity as the sweat evaporates naturally off your skin. This allows athletes to regulate body temperature easier and push themselves harder as we harness the power of our sweat. Sweat is our friend. Keep it on you. Zenkai Sports is also the only performance apparel company which is cotton-based. All of their gear is over 65% cotton and some pieces over 95%. Cotton is biodegradable, feels great against our skin, and is much better for our environment than synthetic-based apparel. Please go to ZenkaiSports.com for more information and for 20% off your entire order. Just use the discount code LYM20. Well, I think that's a, you make a huge point, Jer, which actually um, snapped a, a previous experience in my career that <clears throat> probably most of the people listening don't even know in, in hockey, there's a thing called skate profiling. And probably in the last 15 years, it's become far more prevalent where effectively how the the skate is set up both from the rocker, from front to back, the pitch, the actual um, depth of the of the, the 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 edges itself, etc. I mean, all the jargon has left me to a degree now. But what people don't recognize is every every athlete's skate is set up differently um, when they go onto the ice. And so, as an example, a forward will have a higher rocker because they have to move quickly, and a defenseman will have a, a, a flatter rocker, Kevin's, as an example. Marley says the hollow. Thank you, buddy, the hollow. <laughs> Thanks, Kevin. And, and the pitch will be set up. And, in fact, there's different um, res, uh, rigidity of skates. And I've had, I had guys who would simply go from a bower to a Reebok skate and not even take into consideration that the Reebok skate that they took was eight levels stiffer than the one they took the bower skate. And so this guy goes in and grabs new skates comes back into the clinic and says, I have back pain, or comes to the gym and says, I have back pain. And all of a sudden, all hell breaks loose around their 
rehab program or their training program and the strength coach gets blamed for squatting today when the reason the person has back pain is because they changed their skates or they changed their skate profile. So to your point, having the wax tech or the, the, or the equipment manager involved in the process is massive in understanding all the factors that could be at play in somebody getting injured or somebody having a performance deck. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so, you know, the, 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 the happy ending to my intimidating hire of a, of a, of a doctor is that all seven, I think would have been a really good fit, which was awesome and a surprise. And it was so difficult. And we ended up with Michaela and she's amazing because she wants to talk to the wax tech and she wants to talk to Hannah in nutrition. And she wants to talk to even people who, you know, I might bring into an influence that some doctors are like, I oh, will never talk to that type of professional. I'm like, ah, listen up. She might have something to offer. Michaela leans into those opportunities. And so to me, it's all about personality. The fact that she's also a world-class doctor is, well, you knew I was always going to find a world-class doctor, right? Because I wasn't going to stop until I did. But I needed to find a world-class person. Right. That's awesome. Mm. Question you said. Yeah. So from Zach Yantha, how would you approach a therapist that is reluctant to share info on injury history or medical information? Or phrased another way, how does Jared communicate and share information with different staff members at CSI? Hmm. Yeah. Um, well, with CSI, um, it's pretty straightforward because my day-to-day is primarily you know, working with CSI staff that are involved in snowboard. So as the integrated support team lead, um, for snowboard and you know I'm kind of like able to kind of have this team that is to an extent of, of design um, but in terms of like uh, a, a common one would be say if I go back to surfing um, with varying levels of success <laughs> because I would I had you know surfers seeing all sorts of different therapists and, and I mean all sorts of type all sorts of nationalities so like Australians would Go, we would go to France and they would see, you know, maybe someone from Portugal who was working the French event. And um, there's a lot of great therapists in California. So the varying degrees of success would be primarily, first and foremost, there's some chiropractors, osteopaths and physios in California that I just developed great relationships with by building trust because they weren't used to having someone, and I'm paraphrasing their words here, but someone in my field who literally wants to practically, you know, like really get to know what's going on. Like for them, when I would observe treatment of the surfers that I was working with, the Australians, at first I could tell by their body language that maybe they thought my presence there was to control or to observe. So what I would do is signal greater curiosity and humility. Um, and, you know, that builds trust and collaboration works at the pace of trust. Where in one case where it didn't work very well, um, no matter what I did, somehow I was threatening to this, this one therapist. And as it turns out, since I've left, I found out why I was threatening. I was threatening because there was an unethical approach that was going on. So great. I kind of avoided being associated with that because I never really established a good relationship with this individual. Um, but it turns out is because of he's an unscrupulous narcissist. So there you go. One in a hundred. 
you know, walk I'll away and be glad that. that you survived. I just want to add to your curiosity piece there because I thought that was really powerful. And I think this is something for everybody to really take home is um, your curiosity has to be uh, expressed not in in the reactive, call it emergency moments where you're dealing with a crisis. The curiosity has to occur all the time so that the party you're working with gets used to your interest in what it is that you're doing, not when you're in crisis and, and, and then taking it as a question mark mm. of what they're doing. So if we get used to being curious when we're not in crisis and we're just kind of, Hey, w- why do you choose to do that then? Or what's going on here? Or what does this mean? Then when you do have a question in crisis, it's normative, but normally we all wait, till the crisis to try to have a professional conversation with somebody. And that's probably not the best time. Yeah, that is a, that is an absolute great point is um, choose the moments where you can be influential because you can be right all you want. If no one's listening, who cares? You're not going to be effective. Mm -hmm. It's very lonely to be right when no one's listening. (laughs) Might drop on that one. So a question for Jer um, from Tyson says, as a strength coach working closely with therapists and the rest of the IST, what are things you would like to see therapists improve upon or do a better job of? Thanks. I think some of the same things we're talking about here. Um, And I I should preface that um, I think you guys are asking me these questions because you've seen some of the ways we do things now. But I didn't just start the profession like this. I started the profession with my insecurities and my biases, and I still have those insecurities, and I still have those biases. But I'm just more mindful of them and more aware of them, and so then I can have corrections before they lead me astray. They've always led me astray um, in the past. And and then you learn from them, and you go, this path doesn't go where I really, really, really want to go, so these behaviors don't serve me. Um, I think for, um, for generally for, for therapists though, like, especially if you have a strong skill set coming in is to remember that context is really critical. And so if you kind of walk into a room and think that, you know, you need to download all the information to say me and Elliot on that person's tissues from head to toe, Put, let's switch that around. Imagine how long it would take Elliot and I to download everything that we know about the sport and that athlete. So that would take about a month, right? So don't, don't come in like, like think about being a performance therapist, okay? Not just a sports therapist, but a performance therapist. What's the purpose don't put your method above the purpose. So if you come in and, and, and the situation is like, there's a, there's a you know, the, the fella has a, a soreness behind his knee. Okay, so we know something's going on in there. And you're like, there's popliteal tendinopathy or something like that. Don't come in on day two of working with a team and being like, popliteal tendinopathy blah, 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 training loads, out of whack, whatever. You basically just called about 90 people out for not paying attention to this. And, you know, what you don't understand is that 
Um, last week when they won X games, they fell at the bar and they didn't tell you they fell on someone else and they just have a bruise back there. So now your differential diagnosis is in question. You've insulted the biomechanist who's in charge of on snow load monitoring. You've insulted the nutritionist. You've insulted me. You've insulted like, like caution, caution, caution. And when you're talking to the athlete, don't do that thing. Don't do that guru thing where you get the sparkle in the eyes and you come in and you touch the tissues knowing that what you have is you have a drug, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone likes to be touched except for a very small portion of, of athletes, right? So you go in there and you touch, 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 and you get all the feel-good motions. You go, oh, I found this and I found this and your earlobe's out and your neck's out and your thoracic is out and this is out and your glutes aren't firing and your great toe connected to this or whatever. All of that actually might be your observation. But could you imagine if we were coaching the power clean and we told them everything that wasn't perfect? And to to paraphrase you guys, you're just trying to make it better, not fixed. So the sports therapist might be trained to talk about that earlobe, that great toe, that popliteus, the MCL, you know, ooh, laxer on this side or whatever. But that's not performance therapy. Performance therapy is, oh, yeah, that knee, you know what we're going to do? These three things. I'm going to work on it like this. I'm going to talk to Jared about this. We talked about that. And then tomorrow, bam, you're going to land those 1600s, man. Middle of the podium, arms up. Like, that's the purpose. Don't get your method in the way and say, these are the 99 things that are wrong with you. But if you stick with me, kid. If you stick with me, I've got the, you know, I've got the magic hands. Right. And uh, I think that's where, you know, therapists could all almost think more curiously about the coaching process because coaching is behavior change. Isn't therapy the same thing? Yeah. Awesome. Uh, Behavior change. Mike drop for your wrap up there, my friend. We, uh, as usual, when we get on the line with uh, you, we could probably talk for two hours. Um, but we um, told everybody we we're going to talk for an hour. So I want to first thank you, sir, for your time because everybody's time is worth uh, far more than we could ever pay them for. So thank you, sir, uh, for coming and spending your time with this group and giving to it. Uh, number two, I'd like to thank everybody for coming out. Like a fantastic group of people, fantastic showing. Um, too, super excited about that. If you found value in this, please go to the GoFundMe connection and give whatever you can give. And if you can't give anything, no judgment here. That's not what this is about. This is about us helping people who maybe don't have enough right now um, in the situations that they're in. Um, if you're keen to be in these in the future, we're going to do one uh, every Wednesday for the next little while, same time, same bad channel. Next week is a, a man I know Jer has a lot of respect for. I have a lot of time for Stu McMillan, who will be here for an hour again, hanging and banging. And we're just going to keep rolling out with some fantastic human beings and fantastic professionals. So, Jer, thank you, sir, again. Much appreciated. Thank you. That was fun. It's fun. Thanks, guys. And for everybody on board, we're, we, we recorded it. We will post it on that page. So if you want to watch something again, go for it. Thank you, everybody. See ya. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. 
Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.